Welcome to episode 22 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. 
New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 22 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everyone. And how are you, Jen? I'm doing great. How about you? What's up? I'm good. Um, well, first of all, happy fall almost. Not for yeah. us really, but by the time this podcast comes out. <laughs> <laughs> so random. I had an epiphany yesterday about one of my food habits. Oh, I love to hear that. What is it? So I'm really obsessed with cucumbers as well, I just am. Um, and I think they pair really well with wine and I just really love cucumbers. Um, but I'd always thought that I was like, they don't really have any nutrients, really. Like, they're mostly just water, you mm-hmm. know? Right. Um, but I've been reading uh, Dave Asprey's book, Headstrong. Have you read that book? I have not. No. Yeah, so it goes into a lot of, like, uh, environmental toxins and, like, kryptonite and just all, all the little things that are affecting you throughout the day and how you can basically upgrade your life in all aspects. But in any case, he specifically mentioned cucumbers in relation to, have you heard of easy water? No, but I'm okay. I'm going to make a guess. Does it mean that it's water that you get from foods that your body can use easily? Yeah. So basically water found in like fruits and vegetables and then actually water that's exposed to natural sunlight. It's called easy water. And I looked it up separate from his book and it is a a real thing. Um, (laughs) But basically it's water that basically the type of water that's in your body's cells. So it's the same charge as the water in your cells and it it's like perfect for energy assimilation and everything. So that's a reason that it's great to get hydrated from fruits and vegetables compared to like tap water. Um, so now I feel really good about my cucumber craziness. <laughs> well, you know what's funny about that? Now that you're, you're mentioning it, I don't like cucumber. I don't like melon. I don't like celery. Like all those um, foods that I don't like are the ones that are like so much water. I wonder why. <laughs> my body likes my water to not be so easy. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing you can do apparently, and so I've, I've started doing this, I go get my water from Whole Foods. I fill up uh, glass gallons with their filtered water, but apparently you can set your water out in the sun and that will also activate it. So I've started putting my gallons of water outside. Oh, that's interesting. Well, look, I know there's a lot of energy all around us all the time. Energy affects us in many ways. So I've never heard of that, but nothing would surprise me at this point. But now I'm like wondering why don't I like any of those foods that are super watery? Because really... That's pretty much it. All those super watery foods are like the the ones I don't like. Well, melons and cucumbers are in the same family, so that you might just not like that family. And then celery, I don't like celery. It's related to grass, not really. I mean, it's in this, I'm, now I'm going on tangents. I'm really allergic to grass. Okay. <laughs> How are things with you? They're going very well. Yes, I'm working on book two today, and um, I was editing all of the the personal stories. Like in Delay, Don't Deny, I have a a section where people share their stories. And I have a section like that in the new book as well. And they are just so interesting to read. I love reading other people's stories about intermittent fasting and how they choose to eat. So it's my favorite part. I love that. It makes me feel not alone or not so 
strange. It's true. I mean, there's lots and lots of people finding success. And what I'm noticing, of course, in these stories, these these stories are different than the ones in um, Delay, Don't Deny, because they're not all just focused on weight loss. It's focused more on how do you live an intermittent fasting lifestyle and how do you incorporate food within that lifestyle. And so it's fascinating to read everyone's different story about the foods that make them feel best. So I love it. Yeah. Everybody's so different. Yep. All right, so shall we? We have lots of listener questions. Shall we jump in? Let's do it. So to start things off, we have three questions that are sort of, they're all short and they're sort of related, so we thought we would lump them together. So our first question comes from Karen, and the subject is IF time variance, and she says, I am very new to the IF lifestyle. I love listening to your podcast. So informative. Thanks so much. My question is, I do an 18-6 fast at least six days a week, so that means she fasts for 18 hours and then she eats for six hours. Sometimes my eating window, oh, well, now she's going to say this. (laughs) Sometimes my eating window is six hours, sometimes it's less. Do I start the 18-hour fasting period at the time I finish eating on each individual day, which would mean the eating window would start earlier the next day, or do you stay quite rigid in the eating start time? Thanks in advance, Karen. So that's question one. And then question two is from Joyce. And the subject is IF window. And Joyce says, I'm confused as to when you are to actually start a fast. Is it when you first wake up in the morning, then start counting the hours you don't eat? Or do you start counting hours from the last time you ate the night before and start counting your fast from there? Thanks. Enjoy your podcast. Keep them coming. Okay, so sensing a trend. And then the third question comes from Sarah. And her subject is also fasting window. And she says, Hi, Melanie and Jen. I was wondering if having a larger eating window affects your fast, even if you keep the same fasting window. For example, the other night I went to a party and ended up eating for about 12 hours on and off. But then the next day I wasn't hungry until about 2.30 p.m., which gave me a fasting window of 17.5 hours. So is it mostly just the fasting window we pay attention to? or the eating window as well. So three questions, sort of related. People are confused. What do you have to say, Jen? Well, these are some great questions, Karen, Joyce, and Sarah. And I'm actually going to start with Joyce's, which was the second one. And she's asking, when do you actually start the fast? And basically, we always start it from when you finish consuming um, food and beverages in the day, Whenever you're done for the day, that's when the fast starts. And so, yes, the sleeping time does get counted in that. So you don't just, you know, wake up in the morning and start then because, you know, 19 hours after you wake up it would be tricky. <laughs> so, no, it's not – it's from whatever the last time you ate or drank. It's like, you know, some people, if you're using a fasting app and they're, if they're tracking their fast, they would literally start the app right then, boom, and then the fast has begun. Of course, as we've talked about before – your body is not just shifting from the fed state to the fasted state the minute you take your last bite of food. It's a whole process. But we can't know when your body is finished making these these transitions. So we just we count it like that. Um, actually, I'll, I'll jump in really okay. quickly. Somebody actually on Instagram yesterday asked me, she said she eats dinner for her fasting and then she has a glass of wine and she wanted to know if she's still sipping on wine, you know, for an hour after 
when she would start the fast. And I was like, unfortunately, right. got, <laughs> it's when the last the last drop goes down. It's true. That's because so. you're still you're still consuming. Basically, tie it to your consumption. Mm-hmm. If you're not consuming, then then you can count that as the fasting time. Start the clock then. Now, as far as Karen goes, and also Sarah, they both are interested in how much fasting time should they have. Like Karen asked, you know, it sounds like she really just wants to get in an 18-hour fasting period every day. So if your goal is you want to go at least 18 hours a day, then you could start it from, you know, when you stop eating and then once that 18 hours is over, if you're timing it, then you could say, hey, my window's open now. Um, I don't do it that way. And also with Sarah, she mentioned you know, she was, she was going, it ended up being 17 and a half hours. So, you know, what does she track the faster, the, the eating time for me, I don't track either obsessively when I was um, trying to limit myself to a five hour eating window every day. And now I don't, I don't time that I've talked about it before. It's, it's roughly, you know, four to six hours, five hours, whatever. I don't, I don't worry about it to the minute, but when I was, um, if I needed to change my window for an event, like let's say it ended up, I had an earlier event that day, maybe I opened my window at three and closed it by eight. I didn't just say, okay, now I have to go exactly 18 hours, 19 hours, or however many hours to start. I figure as long as you track the eating window and keep that consistent, the fasting time will take care of itself. You know, there are some days that I might end up with an accidental 24 hour fast if I'm busy. You know, if I have a a late meeting at school and I don't open my window until I get home, you know, maybe it's seven o'clock and I had a 24 hour um, fast at that time. It doesn't really matter. It evens out the day before. Maybe I had a 19 hour fast today. I had a 24 hour fast. Maybe the next day it'll be a 17 hour fast. So I try not to overthink it. And my best way of keeping my own sanity, if I really did want to keep my, my eating window tracked, I would just focus on one or the other. Um, you know, if you want to track your fast, like it seems that Karen is doing, then, then, you know, if your goal is to have at least 18 hours a day, then you can say, okay, anytime after that, I can open my window if I want. For me, it was more of the starting time that I wanted to track on most days. So even now, I I do look at the clock, and as long as it's um, before 4 o'clock, I usually probably won't eat, even if I feel a little twinge of hunger. I like to wait till after 4 Um and I figure the fasting time takes care of itself as long as I don't, you know, go crazy. <laughs> what do you think, Melanie? Those are all, that's all a really great way of putting it. Yeah, I know when I was working on, so my new book is called What When Wine, which you can pre-order on Amazon. Um, but I was trying to decide how to, and I talked, to, I think, to you about this a little bit, Jen. I was trying to figure out how to... Um, outline the different approaches and it is confusing because if you are just tracking the fasting hours it can really lead to fluctuating windows like definitely and I was actually creating a chart and I realized just how much if you're just tracking the fasting how much it can radically change when you would start eating on different days so I think I like what you said about either tracking the fasting or the eating I'm actually so I'm actually the opposite of you. So you said you go more by the eating time. I do. I go more by the fasting time. So basically <laughs> what I do is um, when I stop eating, I make sure I go a minimum fasting hours and then I don't really 
care so much about when I start eating or when I stop eating. But then when I do stop eating, I like to make sure I go a minimum fasting hours again. But yeah, I think what you said is good about focusing on one or the other. Yeah. I think in the beginning, it's better to be more rigid when you're new to fasting because you it makes it more clear uh, if you have very specific time windows. But then when you become more comfortable, you can just become more intuitive and it's not a big deal. Like I don't – I said I count fasting, but I, I don't like hardcore really count. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I actually um, wanted an app to track my eating window and I've talked about it before. I My son um, – developed an app for me because he's an app developer and I wanted it to track the eating window because I don't want to track the fasting time and all the apps I could find all tracked the um the fasting time so it helped me develop a habit I would just click when I opened my window and I made sure to end it by the time you know before five hours or whatever my goal was at that time generally it was five hours but it once I had developed the habit I no longer needed it so I don't use an app now um, but I do think it's a great way to to cement that habit so that you then learn, you know, how to how to make this your lifestyle. Yeah, that's interesting because I've never actually, I've never rigidly had a time limit for my the end of my eating window. Yeah, which is so interesting. We're different in that. It is, and for me, it was um, just because I tended to overeat. If I, but before I got to the point where now I don't because I don't like the way I feel and I just don't feel like I would have that problem anymore. I would tend, I had a hard time listening to my, my signals of, hey, you've had enough now. But I've gotten more in touch with that. I think a lot of it has to do with how, how overweight I was. I mean, I was technically in the obese level. And so I believe my hormones were completely out of balance. And so it took me longer to get to the point where I am now that I'm able to be more intuitive. So, you know, I understand it takes a while for our bodies to get back in sync like they're meant to. Mm -hmm. And the app just really helped me. Intuition is key and you can definitely get there. (laughs) Oh yeah. I'm there now. Exactly. So are we ready for the next question? Yes. Yes. Okay. This is from Jen, which I believe is short from Jennifer, not like me. I'm Virginia, but hello, Jen, Jennifer. (laughs) And her subject is question about fruit carbs. And she says, an avid listener to your show and grateful for all the advice. My question is for both of you. Melanie, you state that you eat primarily a low-carb paleo lifestyle, but you also talk about your love for fruit. I ate keto combined with longer block fasts, one and a half to five days, and IF for a few months and saw minimal weight loss, only a few pounds. I started eating fruit again and fruit in my smoothies. My question is, how many carbs from fruit can you have and still be low carb? And Jen talks about how she eats whole foods but doesn't restrict. I guess I'm confused on what is best for weight loss. I have about 10 to 15 pounds I'd like to lose. Should I keep persistent with keto or is it okay to add fruits back in? I'm trying hard to be intuitive with my body, but I'm still having a lot of GI and digestive issues, which is why I started this journey in the first place. So it's hard to know what's best for my body right now. Any advice or suggestions appreciated. Alrighty. So hi, Jen. Thank you so much for your question. I love this question. Um, so yes, yeah, so I historically, I was much lower carb when I started my intermittent fasting and paleo journey. I mean, at one point I was super duper low carb, 
But then I found that when I started reintroducing more carbs, I think it was better for my stress and my adrenal levels. I'm still on the fence actually about the ideal state for me personally, as far as carb consumption goes. And I do think that is different for everybody. And I think it also varies based on just where you are in your life at that moment. Um, Like I know for me, there are benefits to both. When I'm super low carb, my mind is like laser sharp. I have absolutely no bloating. I know Jen, you talked about GI distress. When I go low carb, I have no bloating. But then on the flip side, I, I struggle a little bit more with bowel movements and also with stress hormones. Um, so it's hard to find like what works for you perfectly. It's hard to find that sweet spot. But yes, yeah, so now I do eat more carbs and I talk about this a lot, but particularly in the form of a lot of fruit, which I find pretty digestible. As far as GI distress goes, I consume low FODMAP fruits, which we talked about on a prior podcast, but those are fruits that are less likely to ferment um, if you're struggling with gas and bloating. But anyways, to more directly address your question, so as far as what constitutes low carb, it's all it's all over the board as far as what people think is low carb, especially when you compare it to the standard American diet that we most people consume. That is very high carb. So people on the standard diet could be consuming, you know, 300, 400 carbs a day, which would mean that consuming 100 carbs a day is by comparison, low carb. Uh, but then on the flip side, some people consume like 20 carbs. And I mean, obviously that's low carb. So it's just really hard to say what's low carb, what's not. I know that for my book when it's coming out, because it has a ton of recipes in it, and I do note if they're low carb or keto. So the keto approach for listeners is basically where you go super duper low carb, typically higher fat, moderate protein, um, and it puts you into a state of ketosis. And we talk about that a lot throughout uh, different podcasts and such, but it's basically a, a fat burning state. So in any case, I know like for my recipes, I make my low carb recipes all contain less than 10 carbs per serving. And then that's assuming people might be eating more servings throughout the day. And then my keto recipes, I make them contain less than five carbs per serving just to be on the safe side. But then also as far as keto goes, that some people think that that has to do more with the percentage of carbs as a macronutrient rather than the literal number of carbs. So basically it's super confusing and it's hard to say. So I would just suggest that you, Jen, go with what makes you feel best. I know you're trying to figure that out right now. You seem to be experimenting. Maybe you could track carbs and see if it affects how you feel. Um, you could track what you eat, see how you, see if it affects how you feel. But as far as weight loss goes, we're all individual. Some people lose more weight on low, lower carbs. Some people lose more weight on higher carbs. I know you want like an answer, but basically you just really have to self-experiment and find what works for you. So what are your thoughts, Jen? Yeah, I think you hit a lot of really great points with that. Um, I want to talk about just the idea of carbs for a minute because we see it lumped together so very often. Just people say, I don't eat carbs. I do eat carbs. I restrict carbs. You know, we're just saying carbs. And a carb is not a carb is not a carb. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of difference between a pineapple, which we know Melanie loves, or, you know, a cucumber or Twinkies. You know, when we're talking about real food carbs, um, that's very different than if you're, you know, eating junky foods or refined foods or um, 
you know, the, the foods that we think of as like snack foods, you know, foods they make in a factory. So I think that, you know, you talked about, you were asked about how I talk about how I eat whole foods, but don't restrict. I mean, I don't only eat whole foods. If, if you listened to last week's episode, I talked about how I ate Doritos and I eat, um, I eat all foods. You know, we ordered pizza Friday night this week because, um, I was out of my fabulous delivery meals and, I worked all day, and I'm like, we're just going to order pizza. So I got this veg- vegetable-laden pizza and ate it, and it was just really gross. I just wanted to throw that in there. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> It was not good at all, and I was craving some vegetables. But um, if you're going to think about foods that you would like to restrict, consider restricting the overly processed ones. And, and I would not be afraid of fruit. I would be more worried about the overly processed foods. Now – Early in your question, you mentioned that you ate keto combined with longer fasts for a few months and only saw minimal weight loss, only a few pounds. That's a big clue that perhaps um, keto may not be what your body prefers. You know, if you feel amazing while you're doing it, that's another story, but you didn't mention how you feel. I know you talked about GI and digestive issues, but, you know, I tried so hard to to do keto and make it work for me because I, I did read a lot about it and it, I was sold on the science of it and I lost no weight at all. Of course, I wasn't combining it with intermittent fasting, but it wasn't until I added carbs back in that I finally started to lose weight. My body prefers a lot of carbs. And of course I feel better when they're, they're real food carbs. Um, and I also feel great when I eat a lot of real food fats, you know, I eat butter, I eat sour cream, I eat, you know, dairy, I add olive oil to things. So you've just really got to figure out what makes you feel good. Um, As far as, you know, what's causing your digestive issues, you have to just try things and see. Is it the fruit that's causing you to have that problem? Is it a certain kind of fruit? You know, Melanie mentioned the FODMAP diet and and making that work for you. I don't have experience with that, but I would would listen to what Melanie suggests with that. you know, there is no one answer. Some people start a keto lifestyle or a low-carb lifestyle and immediately feel like, hey, this is what makes me feel great. They lose weight. They're happy. But I'm not certain that that's um, been working for you. So keep playing around with it. I feel like you have not discovered yet what works for you. So, you know, maybe try to change one thing at a time and see how that works. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and Jen, if you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 22, I will put a link there to, I have a guide that compares, cause there are a lot of different diets that try to address the GI distress and different carbs and such, including low FODMAP, um, but there are some others. And so I have a guide there that compares all of them and it's very color coded. Um, so basically if you can identify foods that seem to be a problem, you might be able to find a trend looking at that chart. So if you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 22, I'll put a link to that. Um, but like Jen said, and like I said before, I just think you're going to have to self-experiment and work on the intuition, but I'm sure you'll find it eventually. <laughs> All right. And then speaking of ketosis, so our next question is actually related and it's um, pretty short, but it comes from Julie subject is ketosis. And she says, hello, ladies, you've talked about keto breath in the past. How do you know if you have it other than someone telling you, is there a specific taste in your mouth? I'm asking because I don't get a nasty taste in my mouth and no one in my family has ever told me I have terrible breath 
and they typically would. I, I fast 19.5, so I assume I am getting into ketosis. Maybe I'm not. How would I know? Or maybe because I oil pull every day and use homemade natural toothpaste and mouth rinse, I just take care of it. Thoughts, Julie? So. Yeah, this is a great question. And um, basically not everybody experiences ketosis in the same way with the same taste. You know, you described it as a nasty taste. I don't, well, I don't necessarily find it to be a nasty taste. It's more of like a metallic taste. You know, some people do describe it as yucky or, or bad breath, but I don't know that, that that's how mine expresses itself. I, I don't know. I have to ask my husband. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't breathe on him a lot um, when I'm at that point. Um, as far as, you know, how do you know if you're getting into ketosis if you don't have the telltale breath, you know, signals? I also don't know how long you've been doing um, 19.5, so it is possible you haven't gotten there yet. It just depends. It's all very individual, and it has to do with your body, your circulating insulin levels, for one thing, your, you know, your glycogen stores, the, you know, how efficient your body is at, at using energy that from the foods you eat. There's so many, so many variables that go into this. So when do you get into ketosis? This is my understanding of it based on all the reading I've done. So we've got stored glycogen in our muscles and in our liver and when we start fasting every day, when we finished eating, you know, our body's going to finish processing the food we've eaten and do what it needs to do with that and then store some of that in your glycogen stores. And then eventually when you've finished with all that food, your body will dip into your glycogen stores for quick energy and you'll run on that for a while. And the whole key is when you have depleted those glycogen stores sufficiently, that's when your body starts switching over into ketosis. Now, it just really depends on you and, like I said, how long you've been doing intermittent fasting and how much glycogen you have stored. If you're brand new, you may not completely burn through your glycogen stores every day. You know, you fill it back up when you eat, you deplete it a little bit during the day. The goal is that you're depleting it more every day than you're refilling it back when you eat because not 100% of what you eat is just going to, bam, go into your glycogen stores. That's not how it works. And I've seen estimates that our glycogen stores hold about 2,000 calories worth of glycogen. So, you know, you're typically not going to refill them, you know, during that five-hour window all the way fully every single day. So if you just think every day a little more comes out than you put in, eventually you've gone through them and your body has to get the energy somewhere, and that's when ketosis happens. Now, um, in Dr. Herring's Fast Five book, he estimates that it takes about three weeks to adjust to the Fast Five lifestyle, which is what you're doing, 19.5. He calls that Fast Five. And so I actually think that's probably a good rule of thumb estimate for how long it takes the average person to to get into ketosis. Three weeks of, of a consistent intermittent fasting regimen, you should probably get there. Now, how do you know you're there? You may not know. Um, any way that you can actually test at home would be those little strips that you, you know, you pee on, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but those strips don't always show you what's happening in your blood. They only show you the ketones that are being excreted. So you may get negative, negative, negative on those little strips and be in ketosis just fine. You know, I've talked before about the ketonics breathalyzer that I had, and they um, measure the ketones that you're excreting in your breath. So I would always 
I was able to verify the feeling of ketosis and check with the breathalyzer and say, oh, yeah, look, I'm excreting ketones, even though I eat carbs um, in my eating window. You know, that's another thing a lot of people are confused about. They think that you can't get into ketosis unless you're you're eating a ketogenic diet. And as I just explained, that's not true. If you're, you know, depleting your glycogen stores a little bit every day, more than you fill them up, you'll eventually get there because you won't have that stored glycogen to run on, even if you eat carbs. Um, there are blood tests you can do, but, and I've seen people who, who do that just as a matter of curiosity. It's the same kind of meter you use to measure your blood glucose, but you can have different strips, and those little strips measure the ketones in your blood. Now, those are a whole lot more accurate, but those strips are very expensive from what I understand. It's really just a novelty. If you are getting good energy, if you've been fasting for a while and you find that during the fast you get good energy, if you ever get a metallic taste or even like a, almost a taste of alcohol or like nail polish remover, the acetone taste, then you can be sure you're probably getting into ketosis and not really worry about it because it's not something that you need to micromanage. Just fast clean like we've talked about before. Keep your eating window around, you know, five hours or shorter or whatever works for you. And you can be sure your body knows what to do in the background. What do you think, Melanie? Yeah, I think that's great. I'm glad that you addressed um, the whole ketosis thing. I think that's uh, – people definitely get really confused about that. And Julie, so we, we did talk about this a lot actually on episode 19 as well. Um, so you can check out that episode as far as detecting ketones and such. But I will just talk a little bit more specifically about uh, the whole breath thing because I know that's what you're <laughs> worried about. As far as why we get that breath or that um, that smell, it's because when ketones are broken down, they generate three different substrates and so or three different potential substrates. One is acetone, the other is uh, B-hydroxybutyrate, and then the third, I don't know how you say it, it's like acetoacetic acid, I don't know. In, in any case, acetone, you might be familiar with um, from like nail polish, nail polish remover. So that's where that smell can come from a lot, um, from the acetone in the breath. But yeah, so I actually did find one study that specifically talked about this whole issue. I well, actually didn't talk about this. It talked about whether or not breath excretion of the different substrates was a viable test for ketosis. It did find that these substrates in the breath significantly correlated to blood uh, blood ketones as well as urinary ketones. So they do seem to be all slightly related, but like Jen said, it's still hard to tell. It's not necessarily indicative of where you're at. So like Jen said, I wouldn't stress too much about it. I would just do what makes you feel good and uh, maybe keep some peppermint breath spray around. Jen and I like to, uh, you, you make it too, right? The, the peppermint? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll put links to this, but we love making uh, our own homemade breath spray of just peppermint oil and water. And I put them in these cute little glass bottles. So I just do that as a, what's the word? A preventative measure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's nice, you know, because if you feel like you have bad breath, and for me, I think the, the biggest culprit is not the ketosis breath, it's the coffee breath. <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, because I drink black coffee up until noon every day, and and I feel like if I've got bad breath, it's the coffee giving me the breath, not the ketosis. Yeah. Oh, breath. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Shall we jump to our next question? Yes, and this is a long one. This is from Magdalena, and I love that name, by the way. Beautiful name. 
And the subject is questions and comments. And Magdalena says, Hi, Melanie and Jen. I've greatly enjoyed listening to your podcast so far. I have a combination of comments and questions. Comment on exogenous ketones. I think your answer to the listener question about exogenous ketones was great. One analogy I saw on Reddit that I found useful was that taking exogenous ketones and saying you're in ketosis is like spraying yourself with sweat and saying you've worked out. Ketones are a result of ketosis, not the other way around. And she says she paraphrased that. But I love that. That made me giggle when I read it. I I love that, Magdalena, because that's kind of the way I think about it, too. I will jump in really quick. Um, I I do love that, and I think that is a good example. But I I do personally think that – I still think exogenous ketones might have their own benefits in certain situations, um, but, but it is, yeah, it's a good, it's a good comment. I mean, I think, I think they will provide you with some energy. Is that, you know, is that what you mean? If you I take them, they'll think, provide. I don't want to go like on a huge tangent. I guess it, just when we talked about the, uh, the benefits of ketones in the past, I mm-hmm. think therapeutically in certain situations, they might be, might be, uh, like I said, therapeutic or healthy or healing, but, um, yeah, I heard. Do you know who Mark Matson is, Doctor Matson? I know I've, it sounds familiar. He's he's a researcher that's doing a lot with longevity and fasting. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard a podcast that he was on. I just listened to it this week. Someone shared it in the Facebook group, and he someone asked him about exogenous ketones. Uh, what did he and, say? Well, he said that um, really, actually, very similar to this idea that that he doesn't know personally if there's any benefits to them, but that there should be research. He said there is no clear research about them yet. He said it's all, you know, there are a lot of claims being made and he's just not sure. And he would have to, there needs to be research. There's just not enough. That's, that's what, that's what his take was. I guess um, one of the things I'm thinking as far as it goes is I've read that for some people, or for a lot of, for all of us, it might be a slightly stressful state to go into ketosis and generate ketones, whereas we could supplement with not necessarily exogenous ketones, but like MCT oil or coconut oil, the substrates for such, and then we could get the benefits of ketones, but still be in a higher carb state and not necessarily in ketosis. That's something else to think about. Yeah, that's, that, that is definitely something interesting to think about. But I, I liked hearing his take. His yeah. point is from... Um, Alzheimer's research and the brain and and that's that's his main area of expertise and so he was fully saying yes ketosis is great for your brain it's great for anti-aging and he talked about lots of reasons why but he wasn't certain that the brain got the same benefits from the exogenous ketones that um yeah it was very interesting oh and here's a side note before I keep we just barely read the question but um he has been living an intermittent fasting lifestyle. He described it on the um, the podcast, which I love hearing what researchers do. You know, if you're one of the premier researchers into longevity and Alzheimer's, I want to know what you're doing, you know, because he's he knows why that these things are important. And he actually eats very much like you and I do, Melanie. Oh, really? He, um, yes, he has an evening eating window, just like us. And he may stretch it a little longer, he said, on the weekends for social events. But um, it was great to hear what he had to say about it. And he's been living this lifestyle for years. And um, he also said he had never done a fast longer than 24 hours. Well, oh. or, or, which I loved because, you know, he he um, doesn't see the need that you have to just fast on and on and on. He just likes that daily time-restricted eating window. It was great. I, it was a, I'll see if I can find that, that link and, and share that because the, um, the listeners may like to, to find this podcast too. 
Yeah, definitely. We'll put a link to that. I'll see if I can find it. It was on Facebook, but I think I can find it. But it was really, really interesting to hear him go into the science of ketosis. And nothing he said contradicted what I thought or already understood, which was exciting because, you know, we're we're lay people. We're not, you know, medical doctors. We're not PhD researchers. I mean, I have a doctorate, but it's not in, <laughs> not in this. So it's it's interesting to listen to the true experts and what they have to say about it. So anyway, I'll go back to the question. I think we've addressed the exogenous ketones. Here's some more. She says, question about insulin response. I've read some sources claiming that sometimes thinking about eating sweets and desserts alone can set off an insulin response. I imagine this is a smaller effect than tasting or smelling something sweet, but I did notice the other day that when I spent a lot of time during my fast planning my next meal, I got hungrier and hungrier. I remember you saying on the podcast that insulin production can turn on based on what your brain thinks it is about to digest, not just what you actually end up eating. Do you know of any research about whether just thinking about food makes fasting more difficult? I have a very short answer to this one. Um, that I could just get into very quickly. And that is, basically, I try to only control what I can. I don't worry about, you know, if I have a thought about food, hey, I watch Food Network while I'm fasting and it doesn't bother me at all. Um, I worry about what I'm consuming. Not, you know, if I'm in the mall and I'm walking by Cinnabon, I'm not going to worry about that. So, Yes, technically, there could be an insulin response from thinking about food. There could be one. I'm not going to worry about that because I I can't control it. So you could make yourself nuts worrying about everything. What do you think, Melanie? Well, yeah, I think that's great. It's definitely true. You can make yourself go crazy. I did do some research, though, on these specific studies (laughs) about this whole thing. Um, So one of them is actually a study I talk about in my upcoming book, and it was a 2005 study. And I feel like the findings are kind of obvious, but it did find that dieters who thought about being on vacation <laughs> experienced fewer cravings throughout the day than if they thought about their favorite food. So if you think about something completely unrelated to food, you're gonna, you, you're likely going to have less cravings, which is going to make the fasting easier. If you think about food, you're probably going to have more cravings. <laughs> and then the second one, and I think Jen, you'll find this very fascinating. So it specifically looked at obese versus lean people and their exposure to food cues and then how it affected their brain and their insulin response. So basically they had obese and lean people and they had them eat two hours before the study. So they weren't too hungry, but they weren't too full. And then they exposed them to food cues and then they monitored, they did MRIs of the brain to see what happened in their hypothalamus. And then as well as, I mean, lots of other complicated things. And they also checked their insulin and they found that for obese people, um, thinking about food correlated to their levels of insulin resistance. So the people who were overweight tended to be more insulin resistant. And when they thought about food, it significantly affected their insulin response. Um, And then I'm guessing as a consequence, probably their cravings and their hunger. But for lean people, they didn't see that effect. So I I just thought that was really interesting. So basically with intermittent fasting, um, if you do struggle with insulin sensitivity problems or you're overweight, you probably don't want to be thinking about food too much. It's probably going to make it more difficult. Um, But then once you do reach a point of insulin sensitivity, it seems that it's, quote, safer to think about food. I just thought that was really fascinating. 
that really is. And, you know, that actually ties into what I said earlier about how I had to, like, more consciously restrict my window mm-hmm. and, and my timing before I got my, my hunger and satiety cues back into balance. And it's all tied up with the hormones. You know, we talk about insulin, but it also goes back to, you know, leptin, ghrelin, all those different hunger and satiety hormones that we've got. And if they're all out of balance, then I think that you're probably going to have um, more trouble from the cues. Like you just said, like that study supports. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And then I also have um, one last study, and this one I also talk about in my book. Um, but they found that willpower is linked to blood sugar. So uh, the more times you have to exercise willpower throughout the day and uh, say no to things, um, it can actually deplete your blood sugar, which can actually obviously make you hungry. So in a dieting situation, and this is a reason that I think intermittent fasting is so wonderful for willpower, in a common dieting situation, you're constantly exposed to decisions about whether or not to eat. You're constantly exposed to decisions about how much to eat. It's just very taxing on your willpower. Being taxing on your willpower, it's going to lower your blood sugar, which is going to make you want to eat more. So it's just basically a miserable <laughs> a miserable time. Um, whereas with fasting, you, once you decide, oh, I'm not eating you know, for this amount of time, you don't even think about it. So then you're not taxing your willpower. I like what you said at the beginning, Jen, about how you don't really stress about it. I think that probably is the best approach to have. Um, But in general, probably thinking more about food might make it more difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that was a great answer. This is a really good one, this next one, because it shows a common question we get. It says, question on glycemic index slash insulin index. There are sweeteners out there that have zero glycemic index, stevia, monk fruit, etc. Does this mean that these sweeteners are exempt from the effect of tasting sweet equals insulin response regardless of calories? Do you have any experience with using these during a fast, for example, in a morning coffee? And I think this one gets to a common misconception about, you know, what do we want to avoid during the fast as far as glycemic response or insulin response? Do you want to handle this one first, Melanie? Or um, do you want well, me I, to? Know, I know you're really excited about this question. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> you could tell. Let me, let me take it. It's your favorite topic. <laughs> well, yeah, because um, people so often get these mixed up. Okay, so... People love to say, hey, stevia, monk fruit, whatever, XYZ sweetener is not going to raise your blood glucose. Yay, that means it's safe during the fast. No, that's not what we're worried about. We're not worried about your glycemic response during the fast. We're worried about your insulin response during the fast. So if something does not raise your blood glucose, that has nothing to do with what the insulin response is. So you people get, get those things so mixed up. So, you know, if it tastes sweet, and you're going to have an insulin response, well, would stevia and monk fruit taste sweet? Yes. So would they give you an insulin response? Yes. Is that the same as a glycemic response? No. When your blood glucose goes up, your body releases insulin to deal with it. So that's why people tend to think that they're linked. But if you're just, you know, not eating anything and you have that insulin response, when your blood glucose has not gone up, then... That's that's what we're talking about here from the stevia, the monk fruit, the sweeteners. Um, I'll also throw in as far as the glycemic index goes, even that is not very telling. Like I don't even think we should look at it. They did a study, and I've talked about this on another podcast, but they recently did a study where they measured people's responses to various foods that are different on the glycemic index, and it was 
all over the board. Um, so for some people, high GI foods created spikes in blood sugar. For other people, it didn't. Um, it was like crazy. <laughs> so basically, I don't even think we should even think about glycemic index. Like just don't even make it a thing. And then as far as the sweeteners go, so I did a lot of research. I couldn't find much on monk fruit, but as far as stevia goes, there are studies going both ways. As far as insulin release, some show that it causes significant insulin insulin release. Others show that it doesn't. And I think that's always the takeaway for us. We don't really know what the insulin response is, but in general, that sweet taste is most likely, I think, going to, yeah. Jen, I think you agree, mm-hmm. going to cause problems. I think so. All right. One more, one more question. I love this last question. <laughs> oh, good. I, I do too. That, she said, this one's a weird one. Question on IF for pets. My cat has been overweight for a while, and my vet tends to advocate a calories in, calories out approach. However, even though I've been carefully measuring out his food for a year, he hasn't lost much weight. Is there any research about whether IF can work for pets, particularly carnivorous animals like cats, which in the wild tend to sleep for long periods and hunt slash eat for only a couple of hours a day? Thank you for making a wonderful podcast. Looking forward to your responses. Okie dokie. Um, so I love this question. And so interestingly enough, my cat Misty is right here with me right now. Um, so I, a few months ago, I was granted the wonderful opportunity of taking care of our cat because we're moving houses and it's just craziness. So Misty, my cat, was super overweight, super lethargic, just lying around. And I was like, I am going to change her. I'm going to change her food. I'm going to intermittent fast her. We're going to do all the things. Um, (laughs) So I've learned a lot and I did a lot of research (laughs) and I have a lot of thoughts about this. The main takeaway is I think it's more about the uh, type of food versus the fasting. But I'm going to go first go into the specific studies about fasting. Um, So we'll talk about dogs versus cats. It looks like from my research that dogs are more suited to intermittent fasting. Um, It's more natural with how they hunt in the wild, especially like wolves (laughs) and such. Um, Cats, however, on the other hand, they are more likely to – they kind of hunt constantly throughout the day and they eat like little small – like, you know, a mouse here and there um, rather than gorging on like a huge feast at once. The research that I did, contrary to what I thought I was going to find, actually suggests that I don't think intermittent fasting is the best for a cat specifically. Um, So there are a few specific reasons for that. So a cat's stomach compared to a dog's stomach doesn't expand in the same way. So cats aren't accustomed to eating large amount of food at one time. Um, So feeding them just once per day might not be the best. Cats also have a tendency to gorge on the food. And then everybody knows we have problems with like hairballs and regurgitation. And I actually found, because I hadn't done this, this, uh, I hadn't seen all of this. And when I got Misty (laughs) at the beginning, I did try intermittent fasting with her. And I found that she was like, she would gorge and then she would kind of like throw up. And I was like, oh, this is not, this is not good. And then another thing about the cats is um, if they get too hungry, it can cause them to stimulate too much bile, and then it can cause them to do – I don't know if your cat can, has done this, but uh, they'll, like, kind of spit up, just spit, and that's um, it's just because basically they 
it looks like they do need to be eating about two or three times per day rather than all at once. All of that said, weight loss, cats, obesity, that's a huge problem, especially with our modern pets today. It's like people today. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with the, the cat food that we're feeding them, the, uh, <laughs> the process stuff. It's just, it's really not good. I, it's kind of shocking if you go and look at all of the different cat foods out there. They're full of all of these like compounds and natural flavors and gl gluten and nothing that cats would be eating in the wild. So what I really recommend, and this is what I do now with my cat, with Misty. Okay, you can go hardcore like I do and order the uh, dehydrated raw food. Are you familiar with that, Jen? No. So it's a thing. Lots of people do it. Um, <laughs> you order basically, it's like, it's basically raw meat concoctions for cats and it's dehydrated. You grind it up and you add water and that is more in line with what cats would be eating normally. Um, I mean, and that's so that you don't have to go as extreme as actually like grinding up raw meat which I contemplated <laughs> doing for a brief amount of time. Um, but I personally, I use the Primal Pets brand. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But then I also got really tired of doing that all the time. So now I alternate between um, that and then a dry food version that is minimal ingredients. I'm kind of obsessed with the topic. So uh, if you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 22, I'll put links to the food I like. Takeaway is... I don't think cats should be on a huge, super duper intermittent fasting pattern. I think you should probably feed them about two or three times a day. But if you want your cat to lose weight, I would look at what you're feeding your cat and um, uh, make sure it's something healthy. Maybe go the uh, a calorie restricted route, but feeding your cat the foods that I'm going to put links to on the show notes. Yeah, I'm sorry. That was a lot of information, but I just... Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't have a lot to add, but I have a funny story. And oh, yeah, I'm, yeah, well, story you, time. you, you know the story because you'll probably edit it out because it happened in the middle of, of while Melanie was talking a little while ago. My cat came in through the cat window with the, with a salamander in her mouth. And that's happened before when we were recording. <laughs> it does. Cause yes, <laughs> I like to feed my cat, whatever she can drag in from the yard. But no, really, that's, that's true. We have three cats. And um, one of them, Ellie, she is young. She's just a couple years old, and she's very, very lean, very active. And then I have one that's in the middle, and then I have an old, old boy named Jackson. And so we can look at Ellie and Jackson and the two of them, and they're just the contrast in cat because Ellie is always running around, always outside. She's eating a lizard, like literally they crunch when you eat them. And I've learned that because <laughs> she will eat one right in front of you in the house, in the living room. Whereas Jackson just lays around all day, and then he'll go and he'll eat some cat food. But she really does. She's very lean. She'll eat a whole lizard. Then she'll have two bites of cat food. Then she runs back out. So what you said about eating small amounts frequently is very much how she chooses to eat. She is not an intermittent faster. But my um, my big old boy, you know, he just lays around because <laughs> he's old. Yeah. Anyway, that was my funny story. The, the salamander is still in the room with me somewhere. I put her out of the room, but I'm like looking because I saw it. It was crawling over there. So if I start going, ah, ah, that's why. It's a constant animal farm at the Stevens house. <laughs> Our cat, 
Yeah, our cats at home, they would bring in just because we had a cat door yeah. and they'd bring in just everything. Rats, birds. Oh, yeah, we do just... too. Then one of the cats, Ringo, he likes to bring in birds, but they're often like stunned because they'll have hit a window and then he brings them in and um, then they wake up <laughs> and start flying around. So it's interesting. You know how we talk about listening to your body and finding what works for you? Well, Ringo prefers anything in the bird family. And Ellie likes reptiles and amphibians. So they have found their diet that works for them. <laughs> yeah. I, I, do, I do think if they're eating food similar to what they should be eating, they'll be pretty intuitive with it. I think the problem is when we feed them these commercial cat foods that right. are just engineered probably to just make them want more so we keep buying it. Probably. The Doritos for cats, right? Yep, basically. Basically. <laughs> All right, so I guess we can answer one more question before we go, and this one comes from Rachel, and the subject is, does taking medication break the fast? So kind of relates to some of our earlier questions, but she says, hi, I'm trying to do IF one meal a day. I'm on day two and was wondering if taking Armour Thyroid in the morning would be breaking my fast. I don't want to eat until evening, so I'm hoping the Armour won't be an issue. Are there any medications that would be breaking the fast in general? Um, so that's a pretty short question, and I think we have a pretty short answer, pretty concrete, probably the same. Would you like to spiel it, Jen? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, first of all, as we always tell you, we are not doctors, and we are not going to give you any um, advice as far as like medical advice that you should get from a doctor. So please continue to take all medications as prescribed, and before you change anything in your prescription regimen about when you take it, make sure to talk to your doctor about it. Um, you know, Armour Thyroid, I have some experience with this. I have a thyroid nodule, and so I took Armour Thyroid for a while. Um, it was it was before I did intermittent fasting, but it was prescribed by a doctor, and I took it for a while. And basically, it's, it's replacing a natural hormone that your body makes anyway. So I wouldn't even give that a thought. Of course, you know, don't stop taking any medications for worry that you're breaking your fast. Take your medication as prescribed. But I really don't think that this one would. You know, it's hard to give a blanket answer about every possible medication or supplement as to, quote, would it break the fast or not, because everything has a different mechanism in the body. So there's no one answer. But I think as far as this one goes, I wouldn't worry about it at all. What do you think, Melanie? Yeah, definitely take your medication the way it's prescribed. Supplements are a whole other issue, and we've we talked about that on various podcasts. But as far as medication, I would encourage you to Go with the way it's prescribed. Go with what your doctor t tells you. And hopefully with your um, new eating habits and new meal habits, we can, in general, get off of some of our medications. Hopefully we can heal. I mean, some people do need to be on thyroid, um, but I don't know. There's potential. Yeah. I actually, you know, people have reported that in the Facebook groups that they, um, like, I think Hashimoto's as an example, some people who have been diagnosed with Hashimoto's, um, after having an intermittent fasting lifestyle, find that their their numbers are suddenly in the normal range. So it's it's just interesting. This is all anecdotal, and it's what people have reported in the groups. But people do experience amazing healing through intermittent fasting because your body has time to do things it needs to do because we're not always eating. It's great. <laughs> it really is. All right. Well, this was wonderful. Do you have any other thoughts about anything, Jen? No, and so far the salamander has not jumped out and attacked oh, me, good. so it's been a great day. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for listening. A few quick things before we go. 
So if you enjoyed today's episode, we would love, love, love if you could go to iTunes and leave us a brief review. That would just be super awesome and we would super appreciate that. And also while you're at iTunes, you can also subscribe there and then you'll get the podcast downloaded automatically to your app or whatever you're using. And if you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, there are two ways that you can do that. You can directly email us at questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to our website which is ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there also at that website i've mentioned this throughout the uh throughout the show but if you want to look up any of the stuff that we talked about like that cat food or um, anything else or any of these studies that we talked about we will post show notes about this particular episode. So you can go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 22. And also um, you can search on that website if you have questions about certain topics. And most of the time, a prior episode will probably come up um, if you have any questions. But still keep sending your questions and don't stress if you think it's already been asked before. We love hearing everything. Keep the questions coming. I think that's, I think that's all. Yeah, I think we had some very interesting topics today. Yes, we did. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, happy fall almost to everybody. Yeah. Okay. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.